The reading is from Ephesians chapter 1 today, beginning at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Praise be to God. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, that interview that you just saw was uh, filmed on, uh, what day was it? Wednesday. And um, then I was interviewed by their search committee uh, yesterday morning. Thank you very much indeed for fasting and praying. I hope that wasn't too much of a burden for you. Um, but I definitely felt lifted up in prayer through that. And um, I'm told by Rory that uh, the interview went really, really well. And I sense, I sense that we're sort of past the tipping point now. Um, it does feel to me like this is going to happen. Uh, their search committee next meets in the first week of March and runs through the various candidates that they've interviewed. Uh, but I think it sounds as though the decision is pretty much made. And hopefully after Easter, we can begin to get into the detail of what this might look like in practice. So don't give up praying. Let's keep praying for this and uh, pray that the Lord will do wonderful and exciting things through it. Good. Well, let's, um, let's pray as we come to our next study in the Apostles' Creed. Our gracious and heavenly Father, you, you've promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing everything we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that you know our past and understand it perfectly. You know our needs and are able to meet them adequately. And you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it wonderfully. So come to us now, we pray, and speak to us by your Spirit that everyone here this morning might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. 
In his name we pray. Amen. So uh, this morning we're thinking about that part of the creed which says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And uh, we all know that, of course, you can say the creed, can't you, when you're half asleep or when your mind is somewhere else altogether. We've all done it. And we also know that some people actually don't really know what they believe. And uh, that is a great sadness, because if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. But I think it's a wonderful thing when God is at work in people, giving them faith and conviction and assurance and zeal for the tremendous truths of Christ. Many years ago, in the 1950s, there was an American couple who went to study at Oxford University. Their names were Sheldon and Jean Van Orken. Uh, they were very intelligent and a very attractive couple. And uh, their goal in life was happiness. They said, we're going to make happiness the number one thing in our lives. Well, in Oxford, they found themselves surrounded by Christian people. Uh, not least those who were influenced by C.S. Lewis, uh, who at the time was the professor of English literature. Anyway, at some point along the journey, Jean Van Orken decided that the pursuit of happiness for its own sake was actually an empty way of life, a selfish life, and she surrendered her life to Jesus. A husband refused to do that. He totally rejected the claims of Christ. Well, a little bit later, Jean became sick, uh, she contracted cancer, and she died at the age of just 40. And her husband wrote a seriously angry letter to C.S. Lewis. He said, this is what your God is like. He's vindictive. This is precisely the kind of thing he does and why I don't believe in him. And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a letter back to him Actually, a very important letter, and over the years it's become a famous letter. And in the letter, he wrote these words quote, God has delivered you from a false God called happiness, and he has dealt you a severe mercy. Now, that phrase, a severe mercy, made a huge impact on Sheldon Van Orken. And in due course, he surrendered his own life to Christ. And he went on to write a famous book with that title, A Severe Mercy. And in that book, he says, you know, I look back on my life as an atheist. And now I realize I had no creed. I had nothing to believe in, nothing to stand for. Well, by contrast, of course, the Christian has a creed, the Apostles' Creed. As you know, the creed is essentially a human document. It was put together by people. It's not an inspired part of Scripture, but it is an extremely useful document. And what we've done so far in our series is we've looked at believing in the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and then we've been, look, been looking at belief in the Son, 
the second person of the Trinity. And everything that the creed says about Jesus so far has all been about the past. He was born in the past. He suffered in the past. He died in the past. He was buried in the past. He rose and ascended. It's all been in the past. But now we come to the one word in the creed that tells us about today, about the present. It's the word seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're going to think about that, and then we're going to look at those words that tell us what's going to happen in the future, that he's coming to judge. So the three words that are the key to our talk this morning are seated, coming, and judge. They're big words. You could actually do an entire series on each one of them. We're not going to do that. But I hope you'll see that these three words open the door to actually a wealth of spiritual treasure. So firstly this morning then, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven is today seated. Now we can't see that. But the Bible tells us that is exactly what he's doing. Hebrews 1 says that after Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down. Ephesians 1, the passage Ruby read, says God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Now, there are a couple of things you and I need to understand about this. For a start, it is not literal language. Please don't be thinking that Jesus is spending all his time sitting down. Uh, The language of sitting and being seated at the right hand of God is to help us understand his authority. So, for example, um, if I say King Charles is on the throne of England. I'm not saying that he spends his entire life sitting on the throne. I'm simply saying that he's in the position of kingly authority in England. Who's on the throne of England? Well, today, and for the next few years probably, it's Charles. Who's on the throne of the universe? Well, for now and for all time, it's Jesus Christ. So it's not a literal idea, Uh, it's a political, sovereign reality. And in fact, if you think about it, the entire Bible has been moving to the point where Jesus is on the throne of the universe in the place of absolute supreme authority. Now I want us to try and picture the sequence of this in the Bible story. Let me run six steps past you very quickly. See if you can follow me. First, step one. The Bible tells us that God is on the throne. Psalm 29, God sits enthroned. Isaiah 40, God sits enthroned. Step two. Jesus promised that he 
would be enthroned. When he said it, it was a huge shock. Uh, The disciples hadn't got the slightest idea what he meant by it. But in Matthew 26, Jesus says, the Son of Man will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And in Luke 22, Jesus says, I will be seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus promised that's what would happen. Step three, Jesus' prediction came true. Hebrews 1, Jesus sat down. Ephesians 1, God seated him. Fourth, he is recognized as the one on the throne. Revelation chapter 5 says, To him who is on the throne be praise and honor and glory and power. And Colossians 3 says, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Five, Christians are said to be seated with Christ. Now, we can't really get our minds around that. It's a very difficult concept. But the Bible says that when a person puts their trust in Jesus, they are seated with him spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2 says when we're converted, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. And number six, step six, one day we will stand physically before the throne of Christ. Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So where then is Jesus Christ today? Well, he's the king, he's the high priest and the judge seated on the throne of the universe. Now, the next thing that we need to understand is that when the Bible says that Jesus sat down, it's simply saying that Jesus has finished the work of paying for sin. That's what it means. So, to paraphrase the writer to the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews says, just look at those priests in the temple. There they are, standing by the altar, And they've got to keep offering sacrifices day after day after day. They've got to keep going. They can't sit down because actually their work is always incomplete. But Hebrews goes on to say, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a perfect, finished work. No other sacrifice for sin was needed. So Jesus sat down. If you think about it, that's why Jesus called out from the cross in John 19, it is finished. I've done it. In other words, when Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he paid in that one sacrifice for all your sins and all my sins. All the sins we've committed in the past, but not only the sins we've committed in the past, the sins we are committing today and the sins we will commit in the remainder of our lives. 
We don't use the prayer book anything like as much as we should do, but the way the prayer book describes this is absolutely beautiful. It talks about the death of Jesus as a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's lovely, isn't it? And that's why we know that good works, our good works, make no contribution whatsoever to our salvation. Salvation is entirely his work. We contribute nothing. Nothing we can do can bring about our salvation. And that, of course, is why the doctrine of purgatory is both unnecessary and insulting, actually. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, purgatory is the idea that when we die, we go to some intermediate place where we work off some of our sinfulness in order to try and make ourselves acceptable for the next step on our journey to heaven. Well, that is insulting to Christ, and it's unnecessary. But um, if the work of paying for sins is completed... That doesn't mean that Jesus can put his feet up. He continues as king, prophet, and priest. Still the king, still the priest, still the prophet. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus continues to rule today as king of kings. Perfect in power, perfect in goodness, sovereign over everything. Now, I don't know what sort of a week you've had. You may have had an absolutely terrible week. Things might have gone sideways for you, and you might be thinking, well, frankly, everything in this world is totally out of control. It's completely random. No, it isn't. It's been perfectly and brilliantly governed by the King of Kings. And what he's doing is he's He's ordering and arranging the circumstances of life, listen to this, to teach us lessons that go way beyond this world. And although we might have our questions and we might want to shake our fist at God every now and then and say to Jesus, why can't you do things better? Please remember that Job tried that. And Job was brought down about 5,000 pegs because, of course, he lost sight of the genius of God and the goodness of God and the purposes of God. Jesus continues to be king on the throne. He continues to be the high priest. And that means for us that he hears our prayers. He hears the prayers of his people. Hebrews 7, Jesus lives to pray for us. Hebrews 4, he hears our prayers and gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. Now, I wonder if you can remember that marvelous time when Jesus was sitting with the disciples and he turns to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to have you, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. I mean, what a shock. I mean, here was Jesus praying that somebody would not be overcome by evil. Well, you know the story. 
evil. That did actually come Peter's way. He denied the Lord Jesus three times, but Peter was not overcome by evil. He repented. He he was restored, and he did indeed strengthen the other disciples. Now, the reason that he could do that was not because Peter was stronger than you or me. No, no. It was only because Jesus prayed for him. That's what Jesus does. And then please will you remember how often in the New Testament that Jesus said we should pray to him and not lose heart because he listens to us. Now, at this point, I have um, a little confession to make. I sometimes, doesn't happen often, but I sometimes fall asleep in my own prayers. Does that happen to any of you? You see, it's interesting this, isn't it? Jesus never falls asleep when I pray or when you pray. He takes a great interest, a tremendous interest in our prayers, even when we don't. And not only is he the king ruling over all the details and the high priest listening to our prayers, he is the prophet. He's the prophet who is continuing to build his church with his word. How does that work? Well, the gospel goes out and the gospel brings people to Christ and it builds them up in their faith in Christ. That is how he's building his church. And you know, it it is wonderful, it's spectacularly wonderful how Jesus is doing that today. Let me give you an example. Nagaland is a state in northeastern India. Uh, Western missionaries took the gospel to Nagaland in the 19th century. At the time, there were only a tiny, tiny number of converts But that tiny minority went out everywhere sharing the gospel. And today, 80% of the population in Nagaland are Christians. Even more interesting, actually, 75% of the population are Baptists. Now, per head of population, Nagaland in northeast India is more Baptist than the state of Mississippi. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And movements like that, you see, challenge any thoughts we might have that Christianity is a Western white religion. It is not. We need to remember that Jesus is building his church around the world. He's seated on the throne. He's ruling. He's praying. He's sending out his word through his people to all nations. So that's the first thing this morning, Jesus is seated. Second, he will come. The Jesus who did come will come. Um, I'm old enough to remember when the first two American astronauts walked on the moon. And I love the quote of astronaut James Irwin, who I think was probably the eighth astronaut to walk on the moon. And after his trip, he became a Christian. 
And he famously said this, quote, God walking on the earth is infinitely more important than man walking on the moon. Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, it is pretty impressive that man could walk on the moon. It's infinitely more impressive that God would walk on the earth. But he did. He did. And you and I can have confidence this morning that the Jesus who did come and who walked on the earth will come again. Why should we be confident about that? Well, because it was a massive part of his teaching. John chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, I will come again and take you to be with me. Multiply that hundreds of times across the New Testament. I mean, think of the parables of Jesus, where he taught about how the master was going to go and come back. We might have doubts about the coming of Christ. Um, Those doubts have been around since the very beginning. And we know, don't we, that Jesus made plenty of promises during his time on earth. He's kept all of them. The only one waiting to be fulfilled is this one, that he's coming back. But perhaps the bigger danger for you and me is not that we doubt the promise. It's that we forget it and that we kind of settle into the world and become thoroughly worldly people. I think that's a bigger danger for you and me. Do you remember that uh, Jesus reminded his audience that in the days of Noah, uh, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? What's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. But when they heard the message about the judgment to come, And, you know, they watched dear old Noah building his boat in the backyard in the middle of the desert. They paid no attention. So when the judgment came, only a handful were saved. You and I need to be extremely careful. We don't forget. The character of Jesus is too dependable, it's too consistent for us to ditch the promise that he would come back. How will he come back? He'll come back physically, because the one who went, the Bible says, is the one who will come. So the same Jesus who walked on the earth and talked and put children on his knee and touched people and healed people, that same Jesus will come. Acts chapter 1, the same Jesus you see leave will return. The difference is that his coming will be a global, not a local event. So we're not to be thinking in terms of him arriving at Cape Town International Airport as if we're the center of the universe. It's not going to be like that. Revelation 1 says, every eye will see him. And Matthew 25 says, All the nations will gather before him. We're not told when this is going to happen, and that, by the way, is a very good thing, 
because it means that every morning we can leap out of bed and say, well, I wonder if he's coming today. That would be a very good thing for us to do, good habit to develop. If we knew exactly when he was coming back into the world, is it not likely that we would slack off and then get super keen again as the time drew near? Well, of course it is. But Jesus said no one knows when that day will be except the Father. And Paul says when he comes, he'll come like a thief in the night. Well, no one's ready for that, are they? Now, friends, I forget this. I forget this. Um, Very easy for me to get so absorbed in the day-to-day and the routine and the business of life and the schedule for the month. And I would be very grateful for any of you who care to remind me that Jesus is coming. Any time you want to do that for me, please do it. It'll do me good. So important, this. You know, the idea of a previous generation that somehow humanity is going to create a perfect world, surely that idea is wearing thin, isn't it? You don't believe that, do you? I'm sure you don't. And I mean, if you think that the next government after the next election or the government after that or the government after that are going to sort things out, well, you know it's not going to happen, don't you? No, we have to wait until Jesus returns to this fallen world and removes all the evil. That is going to happen, and when it does, things will really change. Why will Jesus come? He'll come for two reasons. He's going to come to save, and he's going to come to judge. Luke 21, Jesus says, When you see the Son of Man coming, lift up your heads because you know that your salvation is near. Hebrews 9. He will appear again to bring salvation. Now you might be thinking, well, hang on a moment. I thought I was already saved. Well, actually, that's not quite right. What we have now is salvation from guilt. That's what we've got. And every day, we do receive some kind of salvation from dangers of various kinds. But there's going to come a day when salvation will come in its fullness and we will be saved from all evil. I mean, that will be a very remarkable moment. Amen? Amen. So he'll come to save. He'll also come to judge Um, Act 17 says that there will be a day when Jesus will judge. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says he will judge the living and the dead. And uh, when Jesus comes and brings justice, friends, it's going to be a very, very, very wonderful thing. You know, deep down inside, the world is longing for real justice today. The last hundred years have seen more war than ever before and the slaughter of innocent people in their millions. And deep down, aren't all of us actually crying out inside for a decisive response? 
you know, the abuse of power, the miscarriages of justice, the exploitation of helpless people. Well, all those are things that Jesus is able and willing to put right. And uh, very wonderfully, the New Testament teaches that although judgment is delayed, delayed, it will not in the end be denied. So he's seated, he's coming. And then, third word this morning, this business of judging the living and the dead. What's that all about? It's Jesus who's going to do the judging. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one. He has entrusted judgment to the Son. And friends, I think that's a very wonderful thing. Uh, because the one who knows this world and who knows you and me better than we know ourselves, he's the one who's going to do the judging. There's a sense in which the judgment will take place in stages. Now, what we mean by that is that in the present, people make a decision about Christ. Uh, They respond to him either with resistance or repentance. So they make a decision for or against him. And then, of course, at death, that decision they've made is locked in. Hebrews chapter 9. After death comes judgment. Remember the parable Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus. And speaking about the rich man, Jesus says, in your lifetime, you had your opportunity. So, friends, think about this. What's happening in the world today is that the light of God has come into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus. Some prefer darkness rather than light and have turned away. Others have seen the light and have been drawn towards it. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1, which we've been looking at in the word one-to-one, says that Jesus came to his own people. Some refused him, some received him. Now, the point is that the decision that people make about Jesus is locked in when they die. And then it'll be announced publicly. Jesus will speak to each person either with a word of welcome or a command to depart. So he'll pronounce a verdict on us. But the important thing is that that verdict will simply reflect the way that we've treated him. So the person who's welcomed Jesus in this life will be welcomed. And the person who's turned away from him will be turned away. Now, what is God expecting from us? What is he looking for? Well, he's not looking for a nice, respectable life. That's not going to save anybody. He's not looking for church attendance, however helpful church attendance might be. He's not looking for our ability to quote plenty of memory verses from the Bible, even though that's an excellent thing to learn to do. 
No, God is looking for something very simple. He's given us his son, and he's looking to see whether we've received his son or not. He's offered us eternal life as a free gift, and he's looking to see whether we've accepted that free gift or not. And I just want to remind us this morning that if we have received a brand new life from Jesus Christ, it will be visible. I think we sometimes forget this. There will be evidence. People will be able to see it. So please, friends, don't tell me that you've received eternal life if eternal life isn't impacting your life today. You know, if you think you've received eternal life, but actually nothing has changed, well, have you really received it? You know the answer. I mean, think of a newborn baby. Think of Hudson. Why not? From the moment Hudson was born, he had to learn to feed and cry and relate and change. And actually, Alice and Michael would be extremely concerned if he wasn't doing those things, wouldn't they? And in exactly the same way, when a person receives not physical life, but eternal life, they also learn to feed and cry and relate and change. They're feeding on God's word. They're speaking to God in prayer. They start loving God's people and loving the lost. And they start growing in godliness. And you see, the point is, friends, that Jesus knows whether these things are realities in our lives or not. Remember the parables that Jesus told about the master returning, having given his servants certain abilities and opportunities. That's the issue. Have we received Jesus, and has it changed us? Let me close this morning with just a few quick comments. First, please don't give up on the gospel because you've got questions about how the plan of salvation works. All of us have got questions about that. Um, I have questions about those people around the world being judged who've had less opportunities to hear the word than I've had. I've got questions about that. But you see, there's absolutely no point in me standing outside the kingdom of God with my arms folded, saying, well, I'm not going in until God has answered all my questions. No, the sensible thing for me to do is to trust him because he's perfect and to obey him by trusting his son and then look for opportunities to pass on the good news. That's the first thing. Second, don't get distracted by secondary issues concerning the future, um, concerning the return of Christ. Don't, don't get bogged down by questions about who is the Antichrist? Have I seen him? Do I know him? Uh, or what does the millennium mean? Those are secondary things. You can go and do some homework on them if you want to. But the important thing is Christ will come. Are you ready? Third, please don't expect that you're going to have a perfect life here because you're not. 
This is a fallen world uh, ruined by sinners like us. It's not going to be a perfect world till Christ comes back. A whole lot of things are going to go wrong for us. And those things are there, you see, to remind us that this world is not actually our home. And then lastly, please don't be afraid of meeting Christ. If he is your saviour, don't be afraid of meeting him. Because the one who will stand before you as your judge is the same person who came into this world with great love for you and laid his life down for you. So if you think about it, when you stand before him, you're going to be standing before the person who loves you more than anybody else. And he's the one who's going to assess things beautifully and perfectly. And that's why, when we stand and say the creed, that we're confident and thankful that we belong to the one who is seated, who's coming back, and who will be our judge. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you so much for this astonishing promise and fulfillment of Christ seated on the throne, running the universe, listening to our prayers, praying for us, sending out his word, bringing in his people. We thank you for the promise of his coming. And we pray that you would help us to be mindful and ready every single day. And we also thank you for this day of justice that is coming, when you will be greatly honored, when evil will be subdued forever, your people vindicated, and will be filled with praise for your grace. And so we ask that you would help us to live faithfully in this world and that we would help others to believe as well. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.